We get to pick up our study through the Gospel of Matthew. It's been, I think, a month and a half since we've been in Matthew, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 19 verses of Matthew chapter 11. If you need a Bible, they're over here in the corner. You just get up and get one. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We read, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by your children. The title of my message this morning is Dealing with the Dangerous Dungeon of Doubt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word and how powerful your Holy Spirit is to use your word to change our lives as we dig into your word. And that's our prayer this morning, Lord, that as we look to your word this morning, that you change us. Draw us closer in our relationship with you. Show us things that we need to understand and apply in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace. We pray, we pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us this service that has not completely surrendered their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, we, we pray, Lord, that you'd especially touch their heart today. We thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I found a story about a trial attorney who was defending a man charged with murder. And there was very strong evidence pointing to his guilt, but there was no corpse, no body. And knowing that it was his job uh, to do everything to hold off a jury decision of guilty, the defense attorney resorted to using a trick in his closing argument. He stood looking as confident as he could and said, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you. I'm going to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that my client is not guilty. Within one minute, the person presumed dead, in this case, will walk into this courtroom. 
The lawyer then turned and looked at the courtroom door. The jurors were stunned and all looked eagerly towards the door. A full minute had passed and nothing happened. Finally, the lawyer said, Ladies and gentlemen, I apologize to you for making a false statement. However, every one of you looked with anticipation as you awaited the arrival of the person presumed dead in these proceedings. Therefore, I must ask you to deliver a verdict of not guilty because there was reasonable doubt in every juror's mind as he looked at the courtroom door. The reasonable doubt is that anyone was actually murdered. He then sat down. The jury, clearly confused, retired to deliberate. Within a half hour, the jury returned to the courtroom and delivered a verdict of guilty. Well, the defense attorney was stunned. He couldn't believe his ears. He stood up and asked, how in the world could you find this man guilty? Every one of you looked at the door and waited for the man presumed dead to walk into this very courtroom. And the foreman of the jury said, oh yes, every one of us looked, but your client didn't. Get it? They knew beyond a reasonable doubt the man was guilty. Doubts. Doubt. You know, it's something that I believe we all struggle with from time to time. We, we doubt God's leading, perhaps, when we're making a big decision or in a situation where we expect God to say, go and do. Or we doubt God's provision, perhaps, when, you know, maybe the bills start to pile up. Writer and preacher Lee Strobel says that there are three kinds of people in this room today. Number one, the first group would be those who have doubted. The second group would be those who haven't doubted yet, but who will. And the third group would be those who are brain dead. In other words, if you're a thinking person at all, if you seriously contemplate your faith and what it means to follow Jesus Christ, the chances are every once in a while you're going to come down with some questions, some issues, some uncertainties, some doubts. Now this may surprise you, but the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist, had his own struggles and doubts as well. And that's what we're going to talk about in this message. We're going to see how Jesus dealt with the uncertainty that John was facing. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, the dungeon of doubt. Number two, dealing with doubt. And number three, deliverance from doubt. Number one, the dungeon of doubt. Look at verses one and two. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, just because a person is having doubts, it's not always a sign that they're turning away from their faith. It was Oswald Chambers who said, Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. And really, John's case, it was probably, you might say, that his doubt was due to his confusion. He had a certain concept of what the Christ was supposed to do that, that, that Jesus simply was not doing. It's not that Jesus was failing to do uh, what he was supposed to do. It was that John misunderstood what God was going to do. I think we can have that same problem of misunderstanding as well. Kind of like the story of a couple that was celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary and the, the wife was getting a little bit hard of hearing and the husband wanted to tell everyone how much he loved his wife and so he stands up and he, he, he offers a toast to his bride and he says, I just want to say to my dear wife of 60 years, I have found you tried and true. And everyone said, oh, that's so sweet. But his wife was hard of hearing and she said, what? So even louder this time he says, my dear wife, after 60 years, I have found you to be tried and true. And she shoots back. Well, after 60 years of marriage, I'm tired of you too. 
Listen, in the same way, a lot of times our doubt is due to confusion about what we think God ought to be doing. Now, what was it that plunged John into this dungeon of doubt? Because at the beginning of John's ministry, it was John who said, he must increase and I must decrease. I mean, without a doubt, John put his whole life on the line for Jesus. But now hard times have come to this faithful prophet. King Herod has arrested him and thrown him into prison. And instead of being outside in that fresh air and in the blue skies, John is now in this dark, damp, dingy dungeon dealing with doubt. You know, John perhaps might have thought, maybe what I thought about Jesus isn't the case. Maybe Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah I was expecting. Maybe I misunderstood God and his word. Now, we don't want to be too quick to judge John because the truth is we too sometimes misunderstand God and and his word. And for us, sometimes Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah we expected. When tragedy hits a godly man or woman, we wonder why. When When a child dies or someone we love gets cancer, we ask, why did God allow this? This isn't what I expected. Even the the most spiritual people have days of doubt and uncertainty. Now understand, it's important to realize there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Listen to the difference. Doubt is a matter of the mind when we can't understand what God is doing and and why He's doing it. But unbelief, unbelief is a matter of the will. It happens when we refuse to believe God's Word and refuse to obey what it tells us to do. G. Campbell Morgan puts it this way, quote, Men of faith are always the men who have to confront problems. But if you believe in God, you will sometimes wonder why he allows certain things to happen. But keep in mind, Morgan writes, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Like Habakkuk, the doubter questions God and may even debate God, but the doubter doesn't abandon God. But unbelief is rebellion against God, a refusal to accept what he says and does. Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. See the difference. Doubt is a matter of the mind, whereas unbelief is a matter of the heart. Doubt says, I don't get it. Help me understand. Work with me through this. Unbelief says, I get it. I don't like it. And I refuse to accept it. John simply doubted, but it wasn't unbelief. It it was not willful disobedience, but instead it was prompted by this physical and emotional strain combined with his inability to understand the way in which Jesus was working. Let's look at his situation. Jesus is teaching and is preaching. His disciples have gone out and they're preaching and word is getting out all about Jesus. And word gets to John while John is in prison of all the things that Jesus is doing. And so he sends two of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him in verse 3, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now imagine what it was like for John. Again, Things are coming to him. He's hearing about this. Wow, you know, hey, John, you got to hear about this. Uh, I mean, Jesus, what he's been up to, it's so incredible. There was this man with leprosy that, that came and worshiped the Lord, saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and actually touched him. And the guy was, was clean. Immediately, immediately his leprosy was gone. And then, and then, John, there was this centurion and, and, you know, a soldier. And he came up to Jesus and said his servant was lying home paralyzed and, and dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, well, I'll come and I'll, I'll heal him. And get this, the centurion said to him, I, you know, uh, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus did just that. He spoke a word and the man's servant was healed. He didn't even go to his house. And John's going, oh, that is cool. That is cool. This is great. What power, how incredible. He's probably on his way right now to get me out of prison. 
I bet he's going to be here any second. Man, those doors are going to open wide. And, and don't the prophecies declare that the prison doors are, are going to open and set the captives free? I'm not going to be in here very long. No problem. Any moment, right now, those doors are going to open. Right now, those doors are going to open. Right now, those and there he sat, day after day, week after week, in that dingy, damp, dark, drafty dungeon. Lord, what's going on? And so he calls for his two disciples, go and ask Jesus, do me a favor. Ask him, are you the coming one or do we need to look for another? I mean, this is the same man who said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier is coming who stands on the I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The same man who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what's the problem? Why is John doubting? Well, that brings us to our second point, dealing with doubt. In order to deal with the dungeon of doubt, you must find out why you're doubting. And the answer is really simple, and it is one reason that we may find ourselves doubting God's care, doubting God's provision, His presence, even doubting God's love. John's problem was that he he was focused on what Jesus wasn't doing instead of what He was doing. Let me say that again. John's problem was that he was focused on what Jesus wasn't doing instead of what Jesus was doing. John's thinking probably was something like, well, if Jesus is really the Messiah, then why am I still here in this dungeon? See, John also knew that Isaiah said that the Messiah would open prison doors and set the captives free. So so when's that going to happen? Do you ever feel that way? Where, Where your focus is on what God isn't doing in your life? Do you ever ask, Lord, why am I still in prison? Why haven't you set me free? Lord, why am I going through this situation? I don't like this situation. Lord, when am I going to be released from this trial? Why hasn't this happened yet? But you see, John needed to learn what Paul knew and told the church in Philippi in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works both in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. See, like the disciples and, and so many others who were with Jesus, they had doubts because they misunderstood Jesus' ministry. Scriptures clearly taught that before the Messiah would establish his kingdom on the earth, and by the way, that's still yet to come, but before Messiah would establish his kingdom on the earth, he would have to suffer and die. Before Jesus would wear many crowns, he would have to wear the one crown of thorns. Before he would sit on the throne, he would first be nailed to a cross. That's what the scriptures taught. And if they would have carefully studied the Word of God, they would have read passages like Psalm 22 and like Isaiah 53 that spoke extensively about the suffering of the Messiah. But because they failed to do that, they misunderstood His role. Thus, John asking the question, are you the one? Did we misunderstand this? Basically, he's crying out to Jesus, why haven't you helped me? Why am I still in this prison, this dungeon of doubt? Now understand that to doubt is not necessarily a sinful thing. There's a French proverb that says, he that knows nothing doubts nothing. You see, sometimes doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith. It means we're thinking through some things. We're grappling with it. We're trying to process it. We're trying to understand what's going on. It's been said sometimes we have to go through the foyer of doubt to enter the sanctuary of certainty. So you parents, you know, if you have kids and you got one of your kids come up and say, Mom, you know, I'm struggling with this. How, how could you say God created the whole world, you know? Or, Dad, I'm having a hard time with, with what the Bible says about living morally. Or what about this issue or that issue? Don't panic. That could be a good sign. That could mean they're starting to, to grow up. They're learning to think for themselves. 
And if you have to help them through this process so they can have their own faith, then so be it. They can't live off of the faith of their parents. But the key in this matter is when we are having those matters of doubt that we do cry out to God. Listen, even great men and women of God have had their moments of despair. Moses, he was ready to quit on one occasion after listening to the Israelites complain for the umpteenth time. He finally said, Lord, if it's going to keep being this way, I would prefer it if you just killed me right here and right now. Elijah pretty much said the same thing after hearing that Jezebel had a, a hit out on his life. He said, you know what, Lord, I'm just ready to die. Take me now. Even the great apostle Paul was discouraged. He wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 1.8 when he said, We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. So if you're entertaining doubts, if you're struggling with these issues, take heart. You're not the only one. And here's the thing with John. He was not asking for information. He was more asking for confirmation. Lord, explain this to me again. Did I get this right? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're looking for? And so he's dealing with these issues and he's trying to make sense of them. Now notice Jesus' response in dealing with doubt. Look at verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor of the gospel preach to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus says, look around, guys. See what's going on. Open your Bibles. Remember what is written. See that Isaiah prophesied that these very things would be happening. The blind receive their sight. The lame are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead rise. Look around. Look it up and tell John that the prophecies are being fulfilled and the kingdom is being seen, although in a different way than what perhaps he is expected. The political, material, physical kingdom John was hoping for will come eventually. But right now, Jesus is saying, I'm establishing my kingdom spiritually and touching people's lives individually. And Jesus takes John back to the word of God and he quotes Isaiah 35, another messianic prophecy concerning himself. But that's not all that he does here. By responding in this way, the Lord does something here that he does so often in Scripture and that is, in order to solidify the faith of those who have doubts, he reveals something more about himself. That's an amazing point, and it's worth repeating. When doubt comes in, Jesus, instead of taking you out of the circumstance, will often reveal something more about himself that will encourage you in the circumstance. Jesus here says, you go and tell John that I am the one who makes the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the blind to see. I'm the one who brings the dead back to life and brings the good news to the poor. Listen, the Lord does this so often in Scripture. Think about Moses and the burning bush. As he commissioned by God, Moses had a little bit of a doubt there. Lord, I, I can't do this. Uh, I don't know if I, I have the authority. And because Moses had doubts, God revealed more about himself to Moses. God says to Moses, authority? Authority? You go tell them, I am has sent you. And then God spent the next 40 years revealing to Moses and Israel just who he was. He's the bread of life who provided manna coming down from heaven. He's the living water who provided water out of a rock. He's Jehovah Jireh who provides, as God, the God who provides as God provided them well to eat as God was their strength and their shield in the times of war. Or I think of Hagar. You know her story, she's fleeing from Sarah and she has doubts and, and, and she's out there. And the Lord meets her and gives her a prophecy concerning her son Ishmael. I mean, she had every reason to believe and, and to doubt that no one cares about her. 
that she's going to be left all alone to care for herself and her child. But God met her where she was at and revealed to her more about himself by saying, I'm going to take care of you. And she names the place Bir Lahai Roy, which, which means you are the God who sees. Then look at Paul again in Acts chapter 18. He was there in Corinth and, and, and we get the indication that he had doubt and that fear filled his heart. Why was doubt and fear and anxiety filling Paul's heart? Well, could it be that because of Lystra he was stoned? In Philippi he was beaten and imprisoned. In Thessalonica and, and Berea he was chased out of town. In Athens he was mocked. And, and now he's probably thinking, here we go again. It's going to happen again. Lord, I, I, you know, I, I just know it. So what, is, what does the Lord do? The Lord appears to Paul in a vision and says this in Acts 9, 18, 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And each of those situations, the Lord gave further revelation about himself. To Moses, he revealed, I am that I am, whatever you need. To Hagar, he says, I am the God who sees and hears. To Paul, he says, I'm your friend, I'm your protector, the omniscient one who is always there. And to us, he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that we may boldly say to the Lord is my help, I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, sometimes what the Lord reveals to us, perhaps at that time, isn't what you want to hear. I think of another instance in Paul's life there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he pleaded with the Lord. The, 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 the word there for pleaded is a word begged. Paul begged the Lord that he would take away this thorn in the flesh that he had. Three times he prayed to the Lord, yet nothing changed. God didn't work like he hoped. The situation didn't turn out like Paul planned. But the Lord spoke to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul was looking for a healing, but instead was given a revelation of the grace and the sufficiency of God. Was he bummed? Maybe at first. But he would later write this concerning it. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the Lord seeks to work the same way in our lives. In those times of doubt, He desires to give us further revelation of Himself so that we would take our eyes off of the situation and circumstances and start to put them back on Him again. And stop trying to figure out what God should do, but instead pick up His Word, read and listen, and, and then He gives us further revelation of who He is. Now notice what happens next. As John's disciples leave, Jesus turns to the crowd and talks to them about John. Look at verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to, the, to, to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. As surely I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now this blesses me. And I think it's a good reminder of the Lord's heart towards us. Jesus doesn't say this where John can hear it. In fact, Jesus waited until John's disciples were gone. We read, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, 
This wasn't something communicated to John while he was on earth, but understand John would hear it in heaven. Listen, in the same way with us, there are times when it may seem that we're not really making any impact in anybody's lives. That perhaps we feel like we're not doing anything. And, 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 and even in times when we feel as if the Lord has forgotten us, understand, He has not. He knows and He sees, and the Bible says He will reward openly those things done in secret. If you give a cup of water in His name, you're going to be rewarded. If you're a prayer warrior there in your prayer closet where no one sees you, you will be rewarded. I mean, notice here what Jesus says about John. He says, of all the prophets, John was the greatest. Think about what a radical statement that was. Because to those listening, they would have thought about Elijah. They would have thought about Elisha. They would have thought about Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, even Moses. Jesus is saying, John, he's greater than all those guys. What made John so great? How could he say that? Listen, Moses... Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, and all the other prophets looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, but John actually got to present him to, to the world. These other guys would have given anything to be in John's shoes. John was the greatest because he was the one picked to present the Messiah. Awesome. But notice what else Jesus says in verse 11. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John. Listen, every person here today who knows Jesus Christ personally, those that have been born again, Jesus declares, you are greater than John. What? Listen, Jesus isn't talking about a person that any of us were greater than John as, as people. John was a radical guy. Jesus is talking about our position. John was a good guy, a godly man, but those that know the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and are perfect and holy and righteous in, in Jesus Christ, not in yourself, but those that are in Christ Jesus, Christ's Spirit is dwelling within us. We're born again. That's what makes the difference. John the Baptist was the herald of the King. You're the friend of the King. John was a servant of the bridegroom. You're the bride of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. But some guys, they don't like that. Well, I don't like being a bride. I'm a man. Get over it. You're a bride, okay? You're the bride of Christ. You should take great joy in that. Jesus lived and died on the other side of the, or John rather, lived and died on the other side of the cross, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We live in the new covenant with Christ living in our hearts. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3 verse 9, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which is from God by faith. So simple. Our, our position in Christ as new covenant believers, we're living on the other side of Calvary. We are greater than John in that sense. Now look at verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what does this mean in verse 12? Well, in the original Greek language, this can be translated in a couple of different ways. It could mean that the kingdom of heaven was being attacked by violent men. And indeed it was. John was in prison. He was about to be beheaded. Herod had perhaps killed thousands of babies in his drive to murder the Christ child. Bloodshed and violence abounded as the kingdom emerged. So it could be that this verse speaks of the kingdom of, of heaven suffering violence by enemies trying to overtake it with force. But it actually could be rendered a different way with with. Uh, with equal accuracy. That is that the kingdom of heaven is, is taken by men who are aggressively 
enthusiastically pressing in and laying hold of it. It's not for those that are sitting back kind of apathetically and saying, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. Rather, it's those who are, are fervent in prayer, exercising their faith. They're, 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 they're part of the battle. Their energy is laid hold of the promises of God violently and aggressively. Both meanings of these verse find illustration in John the Baptist. Now, what about verses 14 and 15? And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, what does that mean? I'm willing to receive it. I have ears. I want to know what Jesus is talking about. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because this too is another whole lesson in in dealing with doubt. You see, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, you don't need to turn there. We're told that Elijah would come. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6 says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. So the very last book of the Old Testament predicts the coming of Elijah. But if we turn to John chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but if we turn there, when John the Baptist is down at the Jordan River, people come to him and they say, well, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. And they, they ask him, well, are you Elijah? And he says, nope, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Nope. He said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness saying, get right with God, make straight path for him. So the Old Testament predicts Elijah. The Jews anticipated Elijah. They asked John, are you Elijah? John says, nope, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus says, that's Elijah. If you can receive it, then Elijah who still comes. What? Well, think about this. Remember when John's dad, Zacharias, was in the temple worshiping? Angel came to him and said, hey, I've got great news for you, Zach. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby. And Zach, he doubted it and then lost his voice as a result. But before he did, the angel said, this boy of yours that's coming, listen, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Keep your place in, in Matthew chapter 11. Turn with me a couple of pages over to Matthew chapter 17. I know we're going to get there before too long, but the Lord may come back before them. So just in case. I want to tie it all together before we get to heaven, all right? Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as snow. Actually, I should have taken you back to verse 28 of chapter 16 because it's all a part of that. Look back at verse 28. It says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, they may have doubted those words, but in the very next chapter, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and and reveals more about himself as we looked at already. Look at verse 3 of chapter 17. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And Peter answered and said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Great, Pete. Okay. Obviously, to deal with the doubts of the disciples, Jesus revealed more about himself as he stood there with Elijah and Moses. But then more than that happens. Drop down to verse 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. See, that's future. It's going to happen. 
Just like Malachi predicted it's going to happen in the future, he is coming first and will restore all things. But verse 12, But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Malachi predicts Elijah. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said, Jesus says, it's Elijah. Then he appears with Moses and Elijah. And the disciple says, what's the deal about Elijah? And Jesus says, he's going to come. But he's already come and that's John the Baptist. Again, how do you put all this together? Simple. John the Baptist came as Elijah like, uh, Elijah like forerunner. He came, as the angel said, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Not in the person of Elijah, but in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's like, like a preview of coming attractions. A preview of the real Elijah who will come in the end times. You go, really? Elijah's going to come again? Yep. And you know why? Well, he never died. You know, if you know the story of Elijah, if you remember your Bible, Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11. He never experienced death. Taken into heaven, God preserving him for a future ministry. But there's something else you should know. It's interesting that Moses is mentioned in the book of Jude in, in verse 9. Though he died, it says there that Satan and the archangel argued and wrestled over the body of Moses. So, so why would God care about the body of Moses? Well, he wouldn't care unless God had some future plan for the body of Moses. And I believe that he does. Just as Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah in this glorious kingdom-like revelation to the disciples that, that Jesus promised would taste, would, would the taste of the kingdom in that future, in chapter 11, the book of Revelation, it says there that two witnesses will come on the scene before the dreadful day of the Lord. The consummation of the great tribulation period. And it's interesting that they are able to do the same wonders and works that Moses did turning waters into blood and that Elijah did shutting the rain off from heaven for a period of three and a half years, just like Elijah. So I believe that these two witnesses in Revelation are seen in chapter 17 of Matthew. They are Moses and Elijah and they will literally come to this earth. It won't be John the Baptist, but they themselves will come. I mean, you can have no better uh, a, a witness to the Jewish nation than the lawgiver himself, Moses, and the greatest prophet in their estimation was Elijah. But here, in chapter 11, it says, if you can handle it, if you can receive it, this is Elijah who is to come. He's a preview of coming attractions. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now turn back with me to chapter 11. We'll finish up these, these three verses, verses 16 through 19. Verse 16, but to what shall I like in this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you, you didn't lament. For John came either eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by your children. The people of Israel, the generation at this time, were basically, according to Jesus here, they're like little kids. Really, they're like little brats. The problem wasn't the message. The problem wasn't the messenger. The problem was the little brats. These Pharisees, these scribes, they looked at John the Baptist and they said, oh, he, he's too harsh. He, he denounced us. With Jesus, they said, he's too liberal. He's a friend of tax collectors and wine bibbers and sinners. He eats with people like, like, like Matthew. 
And so they were saying, Jesus, you don't dance to our tune. It's interesting that back then, I read that they, they had two games that the kids would play in the marketplace. One was a wedding game, and the other game was a funeral game. Because those were the two biggest feasts that they saw in their villages. It said behind the funeral marches, the kids would be behind uh, them mocking the people who were at, at the funeral. You know how kids that like, like to mimic their parents and, and often mock with adults too. So when these professional mourners would come, you know, and wailing and, and mocking, the kids were behind them going, ooh, you know, and they're mocking and just making fun of the mourners. And when it was a wedding, big deal, you know, they're, they're dancing and flute playing. The kids would play along with the wedding. Oh, you know, we're getting married. They'd, they'd play along. And so, so you'd have kids out there going, let us play wedding. And the other kids going, I don't want to play wedding. What's my funeral? I don't want to play funeral. And Jesus is saying, you're like this bunch of spoiled brats in the marketplace. You're not happy with John the Baptist, his lifestyle, his message. You're not happy with the Messiah that he pointed to, his message, his lifestyle. The problem isn't with the messenger or the message. It's with you people, the spoiled brats who are saying, you don't dance to our tune. In other words, the problem is with your heart. You don't have the right heart. And I have found... And people that are hypercritical, there's, there's a pattern. A lot of times people are critical with God and it's simply because they themselves aren't fully surrendered to the Lord. So it's always this, this, this Christian's fault or, or that Christian's fault or, or this pastor's fault. You know, oh, he speaks too long or he doesn't speak long enough or he's too loud or he's too quiet or he, he's too intellectual or he's too simple. Too many illustrations, not enough illustrations. When the problem all along could be spiritual brattiness. The problem is with the heart not open to God at all. So Jesus here says in verse 19, though, but wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, Jesus says the fruit of the ministry, what you need to look at are the lives that are being changed, the lives that are changed and will be changed. Proof is in the changed life that you see. You don't have to doubt that I am who I said I am. Just look around you and you can see. This brings us to our third and final point, deliverance from doubt. So as we close, how did Jesus deal with John's doubt? How did, how did we deal with our own doubts? How do we deliver from doubts? Again, John lived and, and died on the other side of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. But you as a Christian, we live in a new covenant. We have Jesus living in our hearts. And here's what Jesus did for John to cast aside the doubts that he had. And I think we can take these same principles and apply them to our lives as, as we too deal a death blow to doubt. And if you're taking notes, three things, and then we're going to close. Three ways to be delivered by, from doubt. Number one, refocus your priorities. Refocus your priorities. That's what Jesus did for John. He refocused John's priorities. John had kind of unbiblical and unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of the ministry and purpose and timing of Jesus. So, so Jesus refocused him and brought his problems into perspective. Jesus didn't, didn't rebuke John. He also didn't release John. Because John wasn't asking for too much. In fact, he was asking for too little. John was looking for this political and material kingdom. But Jesus had something different, something better in mind. Jesus refocused his priorities. In the same way, you might, have said, you might, have said, you might, might say, God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you working in this situation this way? This is the way I think you should work. And God would say, just trust me. Okay, I know what I'm doing. You know, it's going to be better for you. So just refocus your priorities and trust me. But here's when the difficulty comes in. I think we've all done, done this from time to time. And that is at times we think that, well, if, if I really just surrender and say, okay, Lord, I'm just going to trust you on this. 
then it's going to be worse. It's going to happen. Things are going to happen worse. It's not going to get better. But actually, it's the very opposite that takes place. Because the Bible tells us in Psalm 84:11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. If it's good for you, the Lord's going to give it to you. If it isn't, then He's going to hold it back. So, number one, we focus our priorities. Number two, get back into God's Word. Get back to the Word of God. We saw Jesus use Scripture to deliver John back from doubt. He referred to John to the prophecies of Isaiah and said, John, you have some, you have some prophecies right, but you miss some others. Man, you, you don't have the big picture. I want you to have it all. So, so Jesus took him back to the Scriptures. In the same way, if you want doubt to die and faith to grow, then you need to stay in God's Word. There's no other way to, to overcome it. Remember Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Listen, if I'm not looking into God's Word, if I'm not letting the Scriptures speak to my heart, should I be surprised then when doubt begins to overwhelm my life and my faith is not strong enough as it should be? Man, we need to get into the Word. You know, when you're going through hardships, you, know, you don't need some, some catchy little saying, some hallmark saying that they have out there. You need the Word of God. That alone resonates. That alone gives hope. That alone resounds in our soul. These other, you know, little quirky sayings, they don't really, sometimes they hurt. You know, we try to think of some clever or insightful thing to say that isn't based on what Scripture says. It can be very unhelpful, to say the least. Well, hang in there. The sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow. Well, you know, the sun might not come out tomorrow. It might rain for the next 30 days, you know. Listen, we need to get back to the Word of God and remember what it says. Even those of us who have been a Christian for a long time and have studied the Word and have preached the Word, that doesn't mean that we cannot on occasion forget the Word. Some things that I've even preached on that, that I need to be reminded of. Oh yeah, that's true. I kind of forgot that, Lord. Thank you for showing that to me. I need to be reminded of these things. So Jesus takes them back to Scriptures in the same way God wants to help you refocus your priorities, get back to the Word. And finally, number three, if you want to be delivered from doubt, number three, trust and follow Jesus. See, Jesus kept right on going with his purpose, why he came, and then asked John to not be stumbled or offended. He said in verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know what Jesus was doing there? He was asking John just to trust and follow him. And he says the same thing to us this morning. Trust and follow. Listen, if you have doubted God's purpose or timing in your life, remember how Jesus dealt with John. Don't be offended don't be stumbled. You see, right now, we don't see it so clearly. The older I get, the more that realization really becomes to me. You know, things I used to be able to see, I take off my glasses, I used to be oh, I can see that, I can kind of make that out. Not anymore. Everything is fuzzy and blurry. And life can be like that sometimes. And I think that this is what God is doing, or that is what God's doing, but I'm not really sure because it's a little fuzzy right now. So we see, see things in life and we say, we think this is what God should do or, or I don't understand why God doesn't work that way or that. But the Bible tells us one day we're going to see clearly. So don't worry about it right now. First Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. So when you have doubts, you go, Lord, I don't understand why this happened. Why did that happen? No, one day we will. Maybe not this side of heaven. So we're just going to have to file some of those, those issues in, in the little compartment in our minds and, and just label, you know, wait for further information. Yeah, sometimes there'll be answers to your questions the older you get, but we need to recognize that there'll just be some of those things that we, will just not be answered this side of heaven. And we just need to learn to trust in Him. Are you dealing with doubt? Bring it to the Lord. Doubts are going to come. And here's what we need to know. God is in control and has a purpose and a plan through these things that is during these times that we need to trust Him. And, and no, He's not going to give us more than we can handle. Finally, I want to close with this one statement where Jesus said this. He said that He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. I mention this because it speaks of, of a person who has put their faith and trust in Christ. And my closing thought for you today is have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? You know, you may be going through an adversity right now. Maybe you're going through a hardship. Maybe it's due in part to some stupid things that you've done or, or you're reaping the repercussions of them and it's gotten your attention. But maybe that's just the attention that God is going to use to get you to focus in on what, what God has for you in your life. You know, God loves you and He has a plan for you. And, and 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die on the cross for you. And Jesus rose again from the dead and He stands at the door of your heart and, and He knocks and He says, if you'll hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you. Whatever you're facing here is what, what I want to say to you. You don't have to face it alone. There's a God who cares, a God who loves you, a God who will come into your life and forgive you of your sin and to give you the strength to get through whatever you're facing. And if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, you can do it now because he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. That the person has a right relation with God is privileged above all having Christ living inside of them. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, soon as service is over, come up and talk to one of the elders. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and help you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you and we can trust your word. And yes, Lord, we recognize that, that doubts are going to come, but Lord, we need to refocus our priorities on you. Knowing, Lord, that you love us and you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. Lord, we need to focus our hearts on your word. Knowing, Lord, as we dig into your words, that doubts will fade away and faith will grow. And finally, Lord, we know that we need to trust and follow you in every aspect of our life, Lord, not just uh, one day here and one day there, but every single morning as we get up and we prepare our day, we give it to you, Lord. We spend time in your word and we say, Lord, I want to trust and follow you today in all that I do. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, to, to trust and follow you, that they would not leave this place today without coming forward and making that commitment to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your love poured out upon us. Thank you, Lord, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So stand